Welcome back to Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. Today I'm here in Los Angeles with Catherine Renton, who's a doctoral candidate at UCLA. And we're here to talk about the role of horses in particular um, in both medieval and early modern Spanish society, and then also the role of horses in the expansion of the Spanish Empire into the New World. So Catherine, welcome to the program. Thanks, Foster. Great to be here. So I thought to start out, we could just talk a little bit about a bit of background about the role of, uh, of horses in particular in medieval Spanish society. So just to begin, I'm wondering how valuable were uh, horses in, in Castile in particular, both in terms of warfare and society? Horses were a hugely important feature of medieval and early modern life that is hard to relate to today, unless if you were in Los Angeles, a city known for its car culture, and you could use the same analogy for thinking about the culture of the horse surrounded this animal in, in the pre-industrial period. Horses have an enormous symbolic power, so representations of kings, for example, were often painted on horseback. The horse was a powerful animal and also a valuable one. So it represented both military strength and also economic forces. So was there an importance that horses had in Castile in particular that was maybe more or less so than other European countries at this time? The horse in Castile has a really long-standing reputation. So the Andalusian horse, dating from the Punic Wars, the geographer Strabo noted the magnificence of the native Iberian horses. They were also bred by the Muslim Caliphate in Cordoba, contributing to their outstanding reputation. And they were exported to other courts in Europe, especially England and France, because of their reputation. The additional factor that makes horses important in Castile in particular is the ongoing reconquest, as they called it, of the southern part of the Iberian Peninsula from the Muslim kingdoms, meaning that the, the frontier warfare often revolved around the use of horses or the marshalling of horses for the king's host to conduct raids and um, continue the conquest. So I'm, I'm also wondering about the role of horses in terms of kind of the social structure of, uh, of Castile at that time, because I think it's very interesting in Spanish the way that um, the word caballero, it, it means both knight and gentleman, we might say in English, and of course that comes from the word caballo for, for horse. So what was the relationship between horses and that status of, of nobility in uh, medieval Castile. They were very closely intertwined, um, but in a complex and sometimes surprising way. Medieval Castilian society has been called a society organized for war by historian James Powers, indicating the way that the desire for reconquest shaped the kinds of settlements in the new territories that were acquired, often revolving around the rewards that would be distributed to the men either on foot or on horse contributing to the campaign. And those privileges in terms of a booty taken from the conquered town also translated into legal and social privileges. One being the, the ability to ride a horse, another being access to holding municipal cabildo positions, being a regidor, for example. And, and, and what, what does that mean exactly, the cabildo? The, the local town council and the representatives that were elected and 
conducted business for the colonial settlement. So horses were a, a means of gaining economic benefits, but also political power. And that often translated into recognition by the king, such as exemption from taxes. So the horse was tied up in all of these legal and social structures, as well as being a symbol of one's importance. Mm-hmm. So, so just so we're clear on this, it's possible for you not to be of noble blood and have a horse, or be of noble blood and not have a horse. Is that correct? Well, one of the things that drew me to this topic is there's this enormous symbolism around the horse, culturally, politically speaking. Um, but I was really interested in what were the actual relationships between people and these animals underlying the symbolism. Mm-hmm. As someone who has tried to ride a horse before, you know, it doesn't always do what you want it to do. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so there's all kinds of opportunities for creative tension or contestation and negotiation. And yes, the best way to think of it, I think if you have like a Venn diagram in your mind, two overlapping circles, one representing nobility and the other representing the caballero. So a caballero was someone who rode a horse by definition, and it was pretty much simply that. The nobility was a member of the military estate, receiving certain privileges, perhaps from the king, um, into states and, and land that they held. Being a noble did not mean that you was not defined by the horse, although the horse became a symbol of one's nobility. On the other hand, being a caballero was defined by having a horse originally. So there were non-noble men of arms on horseback who would be considered caballeros or knights. But the term caballero then became sort of synonymous with the symbolism of the striving for higher social status representing nobility. Right. So, so it sounds like in terms of the monarchy, they were very interested in having a certain social status attached to the horse since it was so important for warfare in that period, particularly with the, with the reconquest. So I'm wondering, was there anything in specifically the, that the crown tried to do in order to encourage people to, uh, to have horses and, and to use them for warfare? Yes, so the king, in order to call the, the host or the army that he required, relied on nobility or men of standing to provide horses for him. For this reason, the kings in medieval Castile were also very interested in cultivating the privileges of this non-noble knightly group in order to have access to horses and to cultivate a particular kind of allegiance that often major feudal lords would not have. So they, they were more independent and perhaps less uh, obedient or subservient to the, the monarchy at that point. So one thing that they, the kings did was to cultivate this, this loyal class of knights is made it an obligation that anyone who had a certain amount of money, certain quantia they called it, was then obligated to provide a horse for the king as part of that status. This was established in 1348, so after the active period of reconquest when there was a sort of frontier social mobility around the acquisition of, of booty or the repartimiento from, mm-hmm. from those expansions. And as a corollary of that, in order to maintain the prestige of this position of one's identity as caballero, the king also prohibited those same people from riding mules. 
So there was a, a social hierarchy within the equine community that horses were prestigious and mules were not, and the king was trying to maintain that distinction as well. Funnily enough, this created a sort of tension. So while it seems perfectly logical that it would be more advantageous to ride a horse than a mule, um, in this time and place, horses were actually very expensive and was quite a burden to maintain one, especially for those who were sort of on the border between, say, of Hidalgo status, so not the uh, elite nobility. Mm -hmm. Mules, on the other hand, are very frugal animals. They don't eat very much. They're very hardy. They're very practical, especially for the mountainous terrain of, of southern Spain. Uh, so the king was actually interested in in cultivating this class of caballeros who could provide horses for him at the same time that those same caballeros were perhaps less interested in complying with this onerous obligation to maintain horses. Right, yeah, I thought that was a particularly interesting part of, of your research, that this almost battle about that, that, that all these people want to actually own mules, but then the monarchy is trying to push them to to own horses, <laughs> something I ever thought about, you know, in the in the history of this period. And it becomes a, a trend. So during the the sixteenth, the fifteenth century, there's quite a bit of legislation regarding this question of the horse from the king, and you can see that it's it's a an issue of debate or negotiation. So the king is is issuing decrees saying that all men of a certain wealth or estate need to own horses. They can't ride mules. And it's a, a decree that's repeated numerous times, indicating that, in fact, many people were not complying. There's complaints of fraud or you know, pretending to own someone else's horse and rather than, than actually maintaining your own. So we've been talking about medieval Castile. If, if we jump ahead a little bit to the time of Ferdinand and Isabel and the, the so-called unification of, of the crowns, was the policy similar towards horses in, in terms of encouraging people to, to have them, even if they weren't of noble blood, or, or did it change in some ways? The policy persists for a remarkably long time, and I would say it develops almost as a, a type of rhetoric or discourse surrounding this fear of scarcity of the horse and what that would mean for the nobility of Spain in general. In part, this refers to a perhaps an actual scarcity of horses, there weren't enough, but I think more accurately it represents this sort of tension between the aspirations to noble status by the caballero and the king's interest in maintaining certain um, relationship of obligation in order to, to have access to horses. The Catholic monarchs are notable in many ways for changing policies that sort of centralize and strengthen the monarchy they also struggle with providing horses. So right after the conquest of Granada in 1492, Ferdinand and Isabel issue a decree complaining how all of these knights in Andalusia are selling their horses, riding mules, and not maintaining the proper nobility of Castile. So was there anything in particular they did to try and get people to have more horses, similar strategies? The Catholic monarchs sort of relied on the traditional method of requiring horse ownership and preventing the riding of mules. So that, that's a theme that's harped on multiple times. This starts to change though with 
Charles V, he sees some of the futility of insisting on horse ridership, per se, and ownership, and shifts some of the responsibility onto the local municipalities to ensure the quality and provision of horses for the monarchy, including inspections for the horses that were to be bred, registries of all the horses in a particular region, uh, a system for when they would be bred, and an overseer who would report on this. The question of utility, of having enough horses, is really closely tied to the social question of obligations to the king and representing your class through the symbolism of the horse, and it's very hard to disentangle the two. Right. Okay, great. So we're going to take a, a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the role of the horse in early modern Spanish society. In this second section, I want to move into the early modern period because prominent scholars such as Jeffrey Parker have long spoken of a 17th century military revolution in which infantry armed with firearms and pikes superseded cavalry as the dominant military formation. Given the policies regarding horses of these early modern rulers, do you think that argument holds water? Yes, the so-called military revolution is an important thesis behind a lot of developments in early modern Europe, from the development of a standing army, the centralization of a state that would support such a standing army, taxation, so it's that, that concept of the shift from horse-based warfare to infantry and firearm-based warfare is an important one for theories of, of absolutism and development of the state in the early modern period. It's undergone some revision in recent times, though, which I would consider my own research a part of, which is to break down some of the technological determinism of this kind of revolution in tactics. The military revolution concept started with an essay about the Thirty Years' War and the strategies of the Swedish king, Gustavus Adolphus, who used these infantry tactics against the Spanish was victorious and successful. The Treaty of Westphalia is another marker for early modern state formation. Jeffrey Parker's work was a revision of this to say, well, actually, the Spanish were not simply backwards looking and had not modernized or adapted their tactics. He showed that, in fact, they were using infantry formations known as the tercios and pikes. They were also strategically centralizing and employing similar tactics. And he credits their, their defeat in this case to logistical problems of fighting these wars abroad rather than something simple as, as the, the tactics on the battlefield. 
Other scholars more recently have questioned generally the requirements of the military revolution for the development of what they call the fiscal military state, which is the state that can support a standing army through intensive taxation, meaning that there were also corporate interests in mercenary activities around warfare. What's often lost in the discussions of the military revolution and the shift to infantry and firearms is the sort of cyclical adaptations found in military tactics. So this so-called revolution has been identified in more than one place and it makes for, it's, it's not such a linear story. So in the, the 14th century, the English had the first infantry revolution with the, the uh, crossbowmen and it gave them a huge advantage. Um, the, the longbow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But with the developments in armor that could protect the knights, there was an increase in the use of, of heavy cavalry. So the 100 Years War had quite a few of these instances. Then shifting to the Italian wars in the Italian peninsula, you could read any number of accounts and it would say that either it was the heavy cavalry that, that won because they were technologically advanced or the heavy cavalry that lost. So you have both competing stories at the same time. Mm-hmm. I would argue from, from what I've seen in my own research that, that the horse was not necessarily a determining factor either way. It had a lot of cultural, political, economic significance that made it part of the governance and, and the ways that military campaigns were conducted that persisted despite these changes in technology or tactics. And moreover, that the ways in which horses were employed was also adaptable. So there's the military revolution and the shift to infantry, but then there's also the development in response to that of lighter armed cavalry units, like the brigades, brigadoons that would had carried pistols and could, could move more rapidly and adjust quickly. So do you think that there was a social shift in the status that horses and, and people who had horses held at this time due to the shift in, in military tactics, or did it really stay the same? Without a doubt, the importance of the armored knight as a man-at-arms mounted on horseback became a feature of the romantic imagination of the romances, rather than reflecting actual reality of practices and tactics. There is certainly a shift then from the importance of the knight to the importance of the courtier and horsemanship as a means of displaying status and political importance in the sphere of the court, for example. Mm -hmm. So would you say that the horse, it almost became as much or more so a a social symbol as opposed to kind of a military tool or, or was that always the case anyway? Precisely. I would say that the horse was used in military settings and an important tool in specific circumstances, but it had this um, broader integration into legal structures, political structures, and construction of social status that allowed it to persist over a much longer period of time. Okay, great. So. Um We'll take another short break and then we'll move more into the role of the horse in the conquest of the Americas in particular, again, in in this context of uh, early modern warfare.
Welcome back to the program. So for this third section, I want to shift the focus a little bit more to the conquest of the Americas. And I thought to start out, could you just tell us a little bit, did, did they even have horses um, in the Americas prior to the arrival of the, of the Europeans? That's a, a great question and surprisingly not very well known. The horse has become such a, an image of national culture in Latin America and North America, the cowboy or the gaucho or the charro in Mexico, that it's hard to believe sometimes that there were no horses here before the arrival of the Europeans and specifically Columbus's second voyage was the first time that the Spanish brought horses with them. So then, did the horse spread out pretty rapidly among indigenous peoples in the Americas, or did it take a long time? That's something I've been tracing in my, in my dissertation research. Horses arrived as part of the Colombian exchange, and so along with other goods and animals, they did spread throughout the Americas. Crosby, for example, notes the incredible numbers of horses that populated Mexico by the end of the 16th century. This process, though, was an interesting one that, that came from a lot of Spanish initiatives. So the adaptation was not just a sort of a miracle of nature, but also a carefully thought out and planned introduction of horses by the Spanish in the settlements that they made as they expanded their presence in the Americas. Because I imagine that would give the indigenous allies of the Spanish an advantage too if they also have, have the ability to use horses. Absolutely. A lot of people that, that write about the expansion of horses in the Americas um, look at the case of indigenous cultures that adopted horses as part of their resistance against Spanish incursions. So the Comanche, for example, in the southern Texas, northern Mexican region were well known for this in the 17th century. But in fact, the first indigenous peoples to use horses were often the allies of the Spanish. And some of this ties back to the the traditions of using horses in frontier conquests that we talked about earlier in the program, that as a reward for service, indigenous caciques would be given permission to ride horses, whereas conquered peoples or rebellious enemies um, would be prohibited from riding horses as a matter of security and also status. I think this gets us to the central question that I wanted to discuss, and that is, how were the Spanish able to conquer the great civilizations of the Americas with small numbers of men? That's been a prominent question in world history and has been addressed by such popular scholars as Jared Diamond, who in his Guns, Germs, and Steel emphasizes, obviously, firearms, disease, and armor, but many have also noted the role of horses. So how did the Spanish use horses in their conquests and how much of an advantage did they offer? Right. You can only imagine the shock it must have been to see horses or men in armor on horses for the first time. There are reports about reactions, fearing that the horses ate human flesh or could talk to the riders or ate gold and silver. These different sort of myths or hypotheses circulating about the animals. But in reality, they were quite short-lived given the fact that they were mortal and could be killed. Um, right. And moreover, the, the idea of the horse as, as this technology that we talked about with the, the military revolution as well, it's sort of odd to think of it as being something on its way out, 
in the wake of modernization in Europe, but in the case of the Americas, something that represents the power and technology that the Spanish brought. And the idea that horses were very decisive, I think, has been critiqued by historians in ethnohistory or Latin American studies, and rightfully so, that this these creatures were, were not invincible, tactically speaking. Um, in fact, since there were no horses in the Americas, the Spanish had to bring them all arduously across the Atlantic. Many died in the process. When they arrived, the type of food sources and environments that they would be found in were uncertain. And their lifespan, given these nature of the conquests, conquest and the entradas that the Spanish conducted was often very short. So it, like an expedition, Nicuesa, in 1508, he led the first expedition to Panama. He brought 220 horses with them, and the expedition was so distraught and unable to f find a footing that the horses were eaten. So a huge fortune that they had spent in shipping these horses to the Americas for this new settlement didn't even make it through the, through the expedition. Wow. And, and by the way, as a side note, how did um, they get horses all the way to the Americas from Europe? They were brought by ship and basically in, set in a sling in the hold of the ship. And that was one of the reasons for the high mortality. So if they were becalmed at any stage, the amount of food and specific, specifically water that could be given to the animals was very limited and the horse would go if necessary. Yeah, and they're just sort of stuck on this ship, I guess. They arrived in very poor condition. Did the uh, indigenous people living in the Americas also figure out strategies to try and combat these horses that they hadn't previously encountered? Yes, so the, the flexibility and adaptation to the tactics that the Spanish brought with them was quite remarkable. And the horse itself as a tool was useful in very specific circumstances. So typically horses were used in a cavalry charge and reserved for a decisive moment in battle. So it was like a high impact or shock tactic, call it. They were also advantageous because of their speed, so you could move greater distances, say for a scouting party or a quick raid than you could on foot. That being said, the horse would operate much better in an open grassy plain where that speed and force was an advantage and much less to the Spanish advantage in a mountainous terrain or jungle forested area where they could be ambushed from higher location or where the footing might be marshy or full of holes so that the horse would sink or stumble or even break their legs, in which case it would, was pretty much useless. Um, so indigenous tactics included all of those things. So targeting attacks on like mountain passes or hiding in areas where it was much more difficult for the horse to maneuver in that way. And even so far as digging pits in the roads so that the horse would fall in to the uh, Manco Inca, so this is down in, in Cusco in Peru, they used the strategy of flooding the battlefields outside of the cities so that the horses would then have much greater difficulty making it through the, the marshy muck of, of the plains than they would on otherwise. Hmm. So they were, they were 
very creative in the ways that they responded to the, the use of horse in battlefield. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So it sounds to me like the, yeah, the horse gave the Spanish an advantage in certain particular cases, but in some cases could maybe even be more trouble than it's worth militarily. So I'm wondering, why did the Spanish go to, to all these, this trouble to bring these horses over, to try and raise them? Did they offer any advantage beyond um, the, the military advantage that was perhaps limited? Right. I, I think they, it took a lot of effort to bring the horses and implement these new populations in the Americas, which later grew enormously. And that initial effort I would attribute to the kind of social order that the horse maintained in Spain and specifically in new conquest territories. So similar to the non-noble knight in the frontier of Andalusia who received rewards for his horse um, and then perhaps participation in the municipal cabildo, the same was true of the encomendero in the New World, that they received certain advantages for their service, often twice as much in reward if they had provided a horse, and then were also saddled with the obligation of having to provide a horse and arms if needed to the town. So some, some of those similar stratus symbols translated very well. Additionally, horses were considered a state secret, state benefit, so it was not permitted to just trade horses at will. It required special permission, so it also became a distinguishing feature of government officials, representatives of the king, like the viceroy and governors of particular territories, who benefited enormously from this restricted trade in horses to represent their own wealth and advantage. So it sounds like it, they're taking the model that previously existed of tying the horse with social status in, in Spain and adapting that to the particular conditions in the Americas. So would you say that maybe it, it became even more important in the Americas as kind of a social symbol or is it just like a different context? It's a really interesting question. So the the advantages or sort of the the advantages of social mobility that the horse offered complemented the general idea of advancement and capturing wealth of mm -hmm. those that went to the New World. On the other hand, this this fear of scarcity that we talked about in in Castile and how it dictated some of the negotiations between the king and the noble or elite orders differed greatly in the New World context, partly because the introduction of horses was successful on these efforts to create settlements and breeding programs governed by the local town councils, and also the, the open expanse of, of pasture and some of the grasslands, especially in, in Mexico, central, central and northern Mexico, mm -hmm. that allowed for large populations of horses to grow. So there was a dramatic shift from this discourse of scarcity to one of abundance. Hmm. And that created certain new issues as well. Indigenous peoples were prohibited from riding horses by a decree of the Audiencia in 1528. But due to their participation as, as allies in certain campaigns. This was waived, so some individuals were able to ride horses for that reason. They were also enlisted to help maintain the horse populations that the Spanish were trying to produce. And then inevitably some horses were stolen and or traded by groups outside of Spanish control. So there was some tension about this 
delineation of what the horse represented and who had access to it, which on one hand made the horse a much stronger feature of New World culture because of greater access generally. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I would hypothesize it also led to sort of increasing distinctions in smaller details of the style of riding or the kind of gear and equipment that you have with your horse as clues to social status. Right. So, like in Spain, was there also a, a certain resistance to the government encouraging people to ride horses, but both uh, Creoles and indigenous people as well? We mentioned sometimes they're also allowed to do that. Yeah, I would say on the whole, less resistance in the New World context. The horse was a, a sign of having made it in the way that those who gained treasure from the Inca's treasure chest also had made it. Uh, so horses were, say, sought after and also e- more easily available. That being said, the access to horses by indigenous leaders and others became an issue in the mid-16th century. So in 1568, this prohibition against indigenous peoples with access to horses was reasserted and then enforced in much with much greater rigor. The horse was both a symbol of, or a means of distinguishing socially, social distinction, and also a means of social mobility. And this is true in both Spain and the New World. And there's sort of an inherent tension in what the horse represents and how that distinction versus mobility is regulated. Hmm. So so the government was actually concerned that indigenous people could rise in social status because they were riding horses. Yes. So the, the, the last thing I was wondering is, um, you mentioned that in Spain, the Spanish were known for having particularly good horses, that, especially that they acquired from Andalusia. F- from almost a more biological perspective, what happened to the horse when they started to breed in the um, in the Americas? Did, did they maintain that level of quality, you might say? That is a very difficult question to answer, primarily because when you're reading sources about horses, you don't have a visual specimen to go on and categories of breed and quality are very subjective Mm -hmm. and somewhat arbitrary. Uh, So the reputation of the horse in Spain was well known, although there were fears that they were going to lose this national resource. In the New World, certain pockets also had reputations for excellent horses in the region of Michoacan in Mexico and also in the northern parts of Peru. There were certain areas that had reputations for really quality horses. What was interesting, I think, to from the, the monarchy's point of view was this contrast between the scarcity of horses in Spain and their abundance in the New World, which led to some interest in having individual specimens sent back to Spain for the king to look at and see what this New World environment produced. And also the king, Philip II, in the mid-16th century initiated a a really strong program to improve horses and horse breeding in Castile, which I would argue has a lot to do with this experience of introducing and maintaining horses in, in the American context. Uh, so he distributes a survey of relaciones, sort of like the Relaciones Geográficas of the 1570s, about a decade earlier, to the regions of Spain in order to ascertain how they bred their horses, what kind of horses they had, and to implement some new regulations on the municipalities in order to ensure a better quality of horse for Spain. Hmm. 
So in a sense, this is an example of how the new world experience actually altered the experience in, in Europe as well, maybe even increasing the importance of horses back there a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Well, in any case, I, w- I want to thank you so much for coming on the pr- program, Catherine. I think this has been a really fascinating conversation, giving us a lot of new perspective on, well, both military and society, both in the old world and the new. Thank you. Yeah, the horse is an interesting lens for looking at trans-regional topics in, in both areas of history. Yeah, so we get a little bit of Spanish history and the Americans on this program. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook so that you can be notified of new episodes.